Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Mike Savicki on. Mike's been a buddy of mine for a long time. He's a college soccer player, Boston Marathon Bandit, a fighter pilot. He's a quadriplegic. Boston Marathon division winner, husband, dad, writer, media guy, and, you know, I think all around good guy. Mike, welcome. Thank you. I think I've got a a lot going on by that introduction. You do have a lot going on, and hopefully you have a whole lot more in the future as well. I've got to ask you something. I'm I'm a little bit conflicted just in starting this conversation because I watched a hockey game last night, and I know you're a Boston guy starting off, and you're down in North Carolina now. So have you left your Boston roots in Boston or who were you rooting for last night? Absolutely not. I was, I'm a Bostonian through and through. The um, Carolina Hurricane are, for those of you who don't know, an NHL hockey team that migrated south from Hartford, Connecticut. They're actually the Hartford Whalers. Um, As much as I love the Whalers, I love the Bruins more. Um, it's really fun to go to a Hurricanes hockey game because it's usually in the 70s outside um, and you go out and you're feeling warm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Bruins guy through and through, just like the Red Sox and the Patriots and the Celtics. Okay, so you're still okay is, is really, I was trying to figure that out. I wanted to make sure. And it's really Bobby Orr who, because you're old enough that it really was Bobby Orr who hooked you with the, with the Bruins, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, when I grew up in Franklin, I grew up outside of a little bit outside of Boston. And believe it or not, around the time of like the U.S. Olympic hockey team beating the Russians, you know, we had players coming out of Franklin who were playing in the NHL. Um, One of the most successful NHL coaches uh, is a guy named Peter Laviolette or Laviolette, depending on how you pronounce it, grew up a couple miles from where I grew up. We used to skate on his pond as kids. Um, I used to get beat up by all those guys who wound up playing in the NHL. <laughs> that is awesome. How much was the Boston Marathon part of it? We've established you were a Boston guy, but how much was the Boston Marathon part of your growing up too? You know, so speaking of growing up outside of Boston, I grew up in Franklin. Um, Franklin is two or three towns over from Hopkinton. So I always knew about the marathon. I always knew it was there, but I didn't know much uh, until one year when my dad, my dad worked for a paper company and some of his customers flew in and they stayed at our house. Why? Because it was an easy place to stay to get to the Boston Marathon. So here I am like 12, 13, 14 years old. um, And my dad had some guys staying at the house who were gonna run the marathon the next day. And they're eating all this weird food and, you know, laying out their running sneakers and everything. You know, well, my what first, was weird food back then? You know, it was like bananas and, and sorts of like protein shakes, things that, you know, kids don't typically eat. So I watched them get ready for marathon. Then we drove them to the starting line because you could do that back then. This is like the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and dropped them off and then drove all the way to Boston. I thought it was like driving across the country. Um, So my first introduction to the marathon was like, 
you've got to run from all the way out here to all the way in there. That's pretty insane. I think I'll do it someday. Did you? You thought then that you were going to do this. This was your introduction. Yeah, it was. But, you know, as a kid, there's a lot of things I wanted to do. I wanted to go to the moon. I wanted to go to Mars. I wanted to surf in the world. Uh, because as a kid, you can do those things. Uh, but the Boston Marathon was always close to me. It was always close to my heart. You were playing soccer at Tufts, right? And playing soccer with my good buddy, Jim Doikas, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. So I played soccer. I played three sports through high school. The rule in my family was if you don't play a sport, you have to get a job. You have to do one or the other things. So both my sisters and I played three sports all the way through high school. Um, I did the best at soccer and wound up playing at Tufts. Um, absolutely loved it, but playing at, you know, playing at a, at a collegiate level versus high school is very, very different. Um, I loved playing high school soccer. College, not so much because it was a lot of work, but some great guys that I played with at Tufts, yes. So you were fit as a soccer player. Is that how you ended up running Boston as a bandit and as a bandit? Well, explain what a bandit is too. So Boston is one of those amazing, amazing marathons. There's only two marathons in the world that you can't just send in an entry application and run it. The Boston Marathon and the Olympics. Okay, you have to qualify for Boston. You have to qualify for the Olympics too. I would argue the Olympics is a little harder to qualify. Um, so if you want to run Boston, in the old days, it was a lot easier to do. You could run as a bandit. So once the starter's gun sounded and everybody took off, you could jump in and run. So that's what I did. My junior year of college at Tufts, I was with a couple of my roommates the night before we were kind of bickering and bantering about, you know, who's stronger, who's fitter, who's this, that. And the challenge came up, let's run the marathon tomorrow. So one of my roommates and I took the train out to Franklin, where I grew up. My dad dropped us on the, the, the edge of the uh, highway in Hopkinton, right at the off-ramp, because you couldn't get off. Um, it was closed by the police. He dropped us at the off-ramp and said, you guys really want to do this? We walked a mile to the starting line and then ran all the way to Boston. Once the runners went, we ran as bandits. Um, my roommate, a guy named Rich Harris, who was a Marine pilot, finished and said, I never want to do this again. I finished and said, this is the coolest thing. I want to do this for as long as I can. You were also, so you were a soccer player, but you were also in the Navy ROTC as well, right? Like looking to to go fly fighter jets when did when did that when did that thought happen um when i was in high school i applied for my dad was in the navy uh, my dad served as an officer for four years um and i always had in the back of my mind you know i wonder what it would be like to go into the navy um right around the time that i was thinking about that this movie came out um a movie called Top Gun. And I watched it and I thought, you know what? That's what I want to do. With all due respect to being on a ship or being a Marine or being on a submarine, I want to fly jets. So I applied for a Navy ROTC scholarship, um, which gave me uh, sort of free college 
as long as I committed to serving in the Navy afterwards. I thought that was cool. That was a good brotherly thing to do. I had two younger sisters who were going to go to college. Um, and I knew as soon as I was accepted that I wanted to fly jets. I just, that was the thing. It just, I don't know what it was, but it, maybe it was the speed. Maybe it was from watching the movie. Um, being in the ROTC program all the way through college, um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So for four years, while I was taking regular classes, I was also doing ROTC work and some Navy study or Navy programs and stuff in the summer. Uh, so when I graduated, I went right to flight school. So you went right to flight school because you had to do, I mean, effectively like undergrad, you've got to, you've got to study study to be a pilot effectively to, to be able to handle those forces and know what's going on with the forces. Were you Maverick? Were you Iceman? Which, which were you? I don't know. That's a great question. I need to think about that a little bit. Um, I definitely wasn't any one of those guys, I, but I think I was a little bit of almost every one of them. I had some humility, um, had a little bit of self-confidence. Uh, I loved playing beach volleyball. That was something that I kind of fell in love with um, from the times that I was out in the Navy on the West Coast because volleyball is really popular up there. I wouldn't say I was one specifically, uh, but maybe a little bit of three or four of those guys. A little amalgam of three or four of the guys from the movie. Are you, are you going to watch like the other one? The new one's coming out now, right? Yeah, so the new one actually comes out um, Memorial Day weekend this year. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. We have a nine-year-old daughter, um, and, I, and I took her to see the Blue Angels uh, in Charleston, South Carolina a couple weeks ago. Um, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're an amazing, amazing show and she loved it. And I'm thinking now Top Gun, the new one is going to be rated R. Do I take her? Do I tell my wife, Caroline's mom, do I tell her that we're doing it or do I just sneak her into a rated R movie? Do I go see it first? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to go see it. I can't wait. It's, it's a real tribute to flying and the beauty of flying. And that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. What was it like to fly? I mean, the, the, you know, we've seen the movie, right? We've, we've watched this kind of stuff, but we don't, we don't really understand. I mean, even, even today, I was in an event and I was actually near Hill Air Force Base here in Utah. And, and you heard the fighter jets, you know, because the fighter jets are coming out here. And, and I couldn't find it in the sky. Like I could hear it at first and I was looking one way and then I had to look over what does that feel like? What does the speed of sound feel like? What does that proximity to other planes feel like? What is making these crazy moves in the midst of, you know, because I mean, when I think about being on a plane, I sort of think about going from place to place. And that's the best part about being on a plane. Yeah, it's, um, it's effortless freedom. And effortless speed is, is kind of the way I try to describe it. Um, I remember the first time I flew, I was flying with an instructor uh, in an A4. Now that's the jets that the instructors flew in Top Gun. It's a little smaller than the F-14, which was the fighter jet of the time. That's what I wanted to fly. F-14 Tomcats, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. You had to work your way up to that. They don't just hand you a set of keys and say, go fly the Tomcat. So one of my instructor, we landed and we were walking back down the flight line I said to him i mean i was i was laughing i was crying i had thrown up um i, I actually carried two in my flight suit two 
uh, like barf bags. You used to see them on the airplanes. You don't see them so much anymore. I filled up two barf bags of, I didn't, I didn't even know it was inside me. It was coming out, but I'm kind of carrying these two barf bags down the flight line. And this was at Miramar, California, where Top Gun used to be. And I said to him, how do I describe this? How do I tell people what I just did? And he looked at me in all seriousness and he said, you can't. There's no, no way to describe the speed, the freedom, you know, of going from 500 feet above the deck to three miles in three or four seconds, you know, and I live in North Carolina. I live in uh, NASCAR territory, um, friends with a lot of the NASCAR drivers. And a lot of the times when I talk to them, I'm like, oh, isn't that really cute? You went 200 miles an hour this weekend. That must have been really fun. Were you seatbelted in? Um, and, they, and they know because they know I used to fly. They joke and they laugh and they say, okay, we get it. We get it. Okay. You went, you know, four or five, 600 miles an hour. Um, and you weren't stuck on a track in between a whole bunch of other cars. We get it. Um, but when you're going that fast, it's just, it's freedom. It's amazing, you know, to, to go upside down and to look through the canopy and just see the whole world below you. Um, it's, it's just an amazing, beautiful feeling. What's that like to finish? I mean, they talk about like musicians where, where you get that interaction with the audience and it's like, you've never been more loved than you are when you're on stage, but then you come off stage and that ends. When you come out of the plane, what is that like? Like you've had this thrill, you've had this freedom, like a freedom that nobody else experiences. What's that What's that like to get into your personal life, into your, your regular everyday life? Um, that's a great question. It's hard, to, it's hard to carry it over because there are so many things that all of us, we do in our lives that don't translate. Whether we have a certain job and we come home um, and we leave it behind us or you know, a moment that we've had during the day um, we have trouble explaining it to our, our partner, our spouse, our friends, whatever. Um, it, it was really hard to, it's hard to come back down and land and just know that it's over. Um, it gives you a sense, or it gave me at least, a sense of confidence that I carried with me into other things. Now, you've got to remember, right after I was commissioned and right after I started flight school is when I broke my neck. So I went from like, you know, that, that Top Gun character, you know, that Top Gun, you know, image of fit and flying fast and, you know, in control of a Navy jet to not being able to move, not being able to sit up. Um, like that happened instantly for me. So I've always you were kept- bulletproof. I was then, bulletproof. Yes. And then, and then, you could shatter in a moment. Yep. And I never thought that would happen to me because, you know, things like that don't happen to people that we know. They only happen to people that you read about, um, you know, in the newspaper or you hear about. That stuff doesn't happen to people you knew. Well, guess what? It happened to me. So I was able to keep that with me, you know, keep that feeling, keep that confidence 
to a degree with me. Um, you know, and when I go and, and watch the Blue Angels or, you know, even when I get on regular, you know, commercial aircraft, um, the hairs on my on my arms still stand up a little bit because it's still it's still with me. What what do you mean by that confidence? You have that confidence of of being one of the most powerful people in the world in some ways, right? I mean, you're power, powering this jet that it's like Formula One, but even that much more where there's not that much around you and it's just you. What's that kind of confidence? How do you take that confidence into starting over effectively as like an infant, like somebody having to take care of you, take care of your every your every need? And then, yeah. And, 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 and actually getting back to a place where you feel like you are a contributing human being or, or where you're, you're whole again. Um, it wasn't easy. And, you know, a spinal cord injury or any injury or any disability is hard. There's no way to sugarcoat it. You know, it's, it's not, it's not one of those start the movie and the movie's over in an hour and a half or two hours and you know you've saved america and the world's a safe place and y'all hug it out on you know the aircraft carrier flight deck and the world is great disability is hard so when i got hurt you know i felt like a lot of that was taken away from me having as a quadriplegic you know i'm a c67 quadriplegic i'm you know, from my chest, my mid chest down, paralyzed, and I have impairment in all four of my limbs. I can't just bend over and pick up a sock or a shoe or something. It's it's just it's a lot harder. Triceps, biceps, that's the big determining factor. So where are you? Do you have triceps and biceps? Uh, I have biceps. I have no finger movement. So if you look at my hands, they're kind of like pancakes, like flapjacks. Mm -hmm. um, I have some tricep on my left side. My, my injury is kind of asymmetrical. So I'm a little stronger on my left side. I have a trace of tricep on my right. So, you know, when you think about reaching up to get something, if I put my hand over my head, it's going to come back down because I can't lift it. It's, you know, if I throw my arm up, it's going to, you know, come back down and smack me in the head because I don't have a tricep to hold it up. Um, and it's really hard to explain that, um, but that's just the way, you know, in between each of your vertebrae, the nerves come out that control different things. If I broke my neck one bone lower, I would have use of full triceps and some use of my fingers. If I broke my neck one bone higher, I'd have no triceps at all. So I'm kind of in that middle spot, if that makes sense. So I, the visual of, of you putting your arm over your head and hitting yourself in the face, it really just brought back those guys from Franklin that you were saying that ended up in the NHL. I mean, the, you know, yeah. when you're getting beaten up, like, why, why, Mike, why do you keep hitting yourself? But <laughs> now you're yeah. doing it to yourself. Yeah, you know, I've, it's, it's just kind of what I've learned to live with. Um, and as I said, disability is hard and a lot of it is mental. So it would be really easy for me. It's really easy for anybody, I think, with a disability to kind of separate yourself from society, you know, to kind of isolate yourself. Um, but what I've learned through the years is I'm going to put myself out there. And, you know, 
if I reach up for something and slap myself in the face, then, you know, that's just part of it. I'm going to go with it. Um, it's just part of, you know, what you have to do. And when I got into racing, um, I started racing with a lot of paraplegic athletes uh, because there's not as many quad racers as there are paraplegics. How did that um, happen? How did you, how did you start getting into racing? So when I first got hurt, I did my rehabilitation at a VA hospital in Boston. Um, and Boston, as you know, is kind of the, the birthplace of wheelchair marathoning. Um, a guy named Bob Hall, who used to build chairs, he was the first wheelchair marathoner in Boston. I think it was 1975. Um, first official, right? First official uh, wheelchair finisher, because he had to get in in under three hours and went like, 258 or 259 or something like that yeah um that's exactly right and he came to into my hospital room one day and kind of sized me up and here i am trying to put my socks on you know it used to take me a half an hour to put on my socks <laughs> because i'm trying to like pull with my hands and not fall over and all this crazy stuff and he comes in and he's kind of looking me over and i'm like who is this guy um and he said you know you look like an athlete i'm like screw you, man. I don't even know how to put my socks on. I used to be an athlete, not anymore. But he said to me, he said, you know, you were an athlete before you can be an athlete again. So come on out. And if you ever want to get into a racing chair, um, let me know and I'll hook you up. I'll give you a chair you can try out. There's a guy named Cindy Francesco. He's a, a quad similar injury level to me who is out there just around and around and around the track and going steady. He had a beautiful pushing motion. Um, and when we finished, I talked to him and I said, I need you to teach me, show me how to do this. Um, and he not only taught me how to push as a quad because quads and pairs push differently. Um, he gave me some confidence that you can be out there and you might be a few minutes behind everybody else, but you're still doing it, you're still finishing. So between the paras and learning how to train with Sebastian, um, I kind of fell in love with the sport in Boston. Interesting. And, and what you're talking about, the paras, uh, the paras pushing differently than the quads, part of that is exactly what you were talking about before, is the difference of, of having triceps, having triceps or not having triceps, and then also having the hand function or not having the hand function. So, so people are utilizing everything that they have. When did you decide that you were going to do Boston again? And this as a, as an official competitor, not as not as your dad driving you down to the uh, down to the highway and, and letting you traipse through somebody's backyard to get to the starting line. Yeah. So when I graduated from college and went into the Navy, you know, remember, I was kind of I had I had everything going for me. Um, I felt super confident. Um, when everything was taken away, when I broke my neck, I figured, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life. Um, I wanna go back to school because school for me, college was where I did my best learning. I learned about myself. Sure, I learned about my classes, but I learned about myself then. And I thought the best thing for me to do is to go back to college. So I went back and got a graduate degree. Um, I applied to, I, I just, First, I was deciding between law school or business school. I decided there was more I could do with a business degree. Um, long story short, I wound up at Duke in North Carolina. That's what brought me down here back in the early 90s. Um, and 
as I was rolling around, you know, school and I brought a racing chair down with me, people are like, hey, when are you going to do the marathon? When are you going to do Boston again? You should do Boston, you know. This is just sort of the mentality of it. And I didn't know any better. So I thought, why not give it a shot? So I started training more and more and more. It took me two or three or four marathons to get to the point where I could get a qualifying time. Um, and that was- You know what it was? What was the qualifying time you had to run? I think I had to be under two hours and 45 minutes. Um, either 2.45 or three hours. I can't remember for my level of injury. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, the first marathon I went to was the Marine Corps Marathon. It's a beautiful marathon, really, really fun, but there's lots of hills and it finishes at the Iwo Jima Monument. So, you know, runners get this adrenaline kick right at the end and fly right up the last hill, you know, lower level injury wheelchair racers do it. Uh, they go right up it. I get to the bottom of the hill and I look up and I'm a quad and a lot of hills, I have to go up backwards or I have to zigzag. It took me probably 15 minutes to get up that top hill and the last couple hundred yards was on grass so here i am just making it up a hill trying to push across grass i think i missed my qualifying time by the amount of time it took me to get up that hill um i wound up qualifying at a race in florida which was nice and flat and warm um but it, it took a lot, but it was really the motivation of friends and family members to get back and do it. I don't know if I could have done it on my own. That was like a Greek tragedy, right? I mean, this, this Marine Corps yeah. marathon. Yep. Yeah, no, it, exactly. Exactly. And I thought, you know, let me just show up at a marathon and I'll do it. But I didn't know, you know, I don't, I didn't know the challenge when I was when I ran it as a bandit, you know, I was fit, I was in shape, but when you're in a wheelchair and I'd only been racing for a couple of years, um, I was still learning how to do everything. I know I'd never faced that adversity before. So, you know, I kind of finished and I was driving back from Washington DC to Durham, back to my dorm thinking, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? This, this is frustrating. And, but I stuck with it. What made you stick with it? Because that's a big deal, right? It's humiliating. You're out there. You're going so slowly up the hill. You're going backwards up the hill. And people are like, yeah, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. And I don't know about you, but that feeling for me is generally like, shh, like just, just be quiet. Like, like just let's not have anybody know. If I'm going up this slowly, I want to be anonymous. I don't want you to call any attention to me. How did you get over that feeling of embarrassment to be able to, to be able to continue? Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard enough. Um, it's hard enough for us to quiet the voices in our head, whether we have a disability or we're lacking self-confidence in some area. It's hard enough to, qual to quiet those voices, to quiet the voices of people that are cheering you on or supposedly cheering you on who have no idea what it's like to walk in your shoes um, is another thing. You know, but for me, it was friends, it was family members, it was people supporting me, people being there saying, it's gonna be okay, um, you're gonna be fine, we're in your corner, let us know if you need us. Um, you know, it was, it was really that. And I think a lot of fortitude 
going back to flying saying, you know, going back to those flying stories saying, I don't want that to be the end for me. I want to be able to do that still. I just have to find a different way to do it. And did anybody in your family ever run the marathon? Are you the only one? Uh, I was the first person to do it. Uh, my sister actually ran, I have two younger sisters, Mary Beth and Melissa. One of them's a year younger. The other one's three years younger. Um, my sister, Mary Beth, actually ran the 100th Boston. Both of them live in the Boston area. Um, and she ran the 100th Boston. And she was absolutely excited to train to do it. And when she finished, she said, okay, I did it. That's enough. Uh, she was happy. Uh, and my youngest sister said, all right, if my two older siblings have done it, I don't want anything to do with it. It can be yours. I'll go on and share you, but that's about it. So, yeah. So one of my, one of my sisters ran one Boston, had a fantastic time. Um, and they've both been out there cheering me on ever since. What was, what number was it for you this year? Oh, so, all right. So numbers wise, let's see. I ran two as a bandit before I was hurt. The first one was in 89, so 89 and 90. Um, this was my 24th Boston. So I've done 22 on a chair, um, two more overall. I've actually done it, I was thinking about it. I've done it over five decades, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now the 2020s. So I've done it over five decades, um, 24 of them. That's, that's a you know, little less than half my life, um, but it's always been a part of, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's just been part of my life, you know, for, for decades now. It's just something that gives me confidence. It gives me something to look forward to. Um, when you fly into Boston, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. And when you get there, you know, when you live in a wheelchair, people get out of your way. They open doors for you. They feel sorry for you. When you get to Boston for the marathon, it's a completely different story. You're not disabled. You're, you're, you're super abled, you know? Um, that's kind of what brings me back. What's that perspective like for you? So let's, let's look at a little bit of this, right? So you said you came back and you had to run a 245 or a three-hour marathon in order to qualify as a quadriplegic with a trace of tricep muscles that is faster than you ran as a college senior when you ran what 330 something so yeah, you're still right, half right. an hour ahead of where you were as a college as the most like fit guy you've ever been in some ways yeah now the difference in doing it in a wheelchair and this is what makes boston especially special and especially brutal is are the downhills. Um, when I was running, I wasn't going 35 miles an hour. You know, my first, my first mile in Boston this year was under three minutes because it was all downhill. Now the runners don't do that. The, the most elite marathoners in the world don't run that fast. Right. The advantage wheelchairs have is we can get aerodynamic, we can get into a tuck and we can roll. The top racers, uh, the top racers are 40 and 50 miles an hour. I'm kind of conservative and then I slow down, uh, but going 35 miles an hour is fantastic. But the other side of that, especially as a quad is going up the hills is brutal. Um, I usually zigzag because to go straight up the way I sit in my chair, I won't flip over backwards, but the front wheel starts coming up. 
So I'm losing energy and I'm losing momentum. So if I zigzag up the hills, it's going to take me, you know, more, more, more on the ground miles, but I'm faster at doing it. So the hills are especially brutal in a quad like I am, uh, but the speeds make it worthwhile. So there, there are two things you're talking about there. One, the downhill and downhill 35 miles an hour, 35 miles an hour is pretty fast. And what does that feel like for you going 35 miles an hour? Is this, is this that little bit of being back in a fighter jet? Because it does feel pretty fast. And then we'll get to, once you do that, then we'll get to the uphills. Yeah, so the downhills, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it is kind of that feeling of being back in a jet, of that effortless speed. I let go of the wheels. I can't push anymore. The wheels are turning too fast. Um, I have to just let go and hold on and enjoy the ride, you know, and let the engines, as you, you know, as you might say, take over. Um, and that's kind of, for me, that feeling of, of speed, um, of being out on the road all by yourself, um, kind of feeling the wind moving by you. That's, that's kind of the same speed, the same feeling that I had when I was flying. It's hard to replicate anywhere else. I would imagine, because there's not a whole lot there. I mean, you are in what is 16, 18 pound chair and, and it's just you. And if you tumble, it's just you tumbling, going up the hills. So this year, Daniel Romanchuk won the Boston Marathon and his slowest mile per minute was 436. Mm -hmm. That was going up Heartbreak Hill. That was, so 436 is 13 miles an hour. Daniel Romanchuk is, is a phenomenal athlete. And, and, and it's kind of interesting in that in the men's paraplegic division right now, we have two history-defining athletes with Marcel Hoog and Daniel Romanchuk. But going 436, that means that he was going up heartbreak at 13 miles an hour, the average 13 miles an hour going up heartbreak. How is that comprehensible for you in any way, given given the perspective that you have without the triceps, without any core to utilize, that you're just you're just using your arms to get up this. What 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 does that contrast feel like to you? Well, I'll tell you a secret, and this is not something I tell everybody. Um, quads are really smart. Okay, paras can be strong and athletic, but quads are really smart. I've watched Daniel push, and I've watched Marcel push. Um, and I picked up things from them, how they hit the ring, where they hit the ring, how they come off, how their bodies are positioned, how their heads are positioned. You know, I'm trying to maximize everything I can, right, from what I have. So are those guys, but they're doing it efficiently and beautifully. So when you watch Daniel push, when you watch Marcel push, when you watch some of the top racers push, it's a beautiful stroke. It really is how they push, where their bodies are positioned. Um, when I first watched Daniel push a few years ago, one of the very first things I did was go to a bigger push ring. Now quads, we typically want small push rings. 
because we want to keep our hands on the ring. We want to keep it going all the time. But on a hill, that doesn't work. So I actually went to a bigger push ring. It slows me down on the flats because I don't have that super long wingspan or that extra push that's coming from your torso. But on the uphills, it allows me to go just that little bit faster. I can stay on the push rings a little bit longer. Hold on one second. Just, just for clarity purposes, going to, going to a bigger push ring is effectively like, like for somebody on their bike. This is closer to getting to first gear on the bike, having a bigger push ring, whereas a smaller push ring is getting closer to like 10th gear or whatever. And, and for wheelchair racers, there's only one gear. So, so you're choosing, yeah. okay, I want to be closer to like third gear all the time for uphill, downhill, and the flats, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to somebody like, you know, so, some of the other racers, but then a Daniel is also in a different position in that he has a 610, 611 wingspan. And yep. so he can stay on this 18 inch push ring a whole lot longer. So sorry for interrupting there. No, that's fine. You know, in years before Daniel, uh, there's a Swiss racer named Heinz Fry. Mm -hmm. uh, now Heinz, who I think is one of the most beautiful racers I've ever seen push, is a higher level disability than someone like Daniel or some of the lower level T54 guys. Heinz has a beautiful sitting position and a beautiful stroke. Um, he was one of the first guys that I looked at and kind of tried to model my position after. Um, there's been some successes and some failures through the years, but when you watch him push, he's going constantly, constantly, constantly. Um, in just such a beautiful way. It's, it's, it's easy to try to learn from someone like that. It's RPMs versus pure raw strength. And <laughs> Heinz Fry, I think is universally seen as the best marathoner out there. I mean, everybody sort of bows down to Heinz Fry. He was a higher level injury, as you said, like mid chest kind of thing, but yep. just just had this engine and just turned over the turned over the wheels constantly, which is which is just so remarkable to, to say you're not the strongest guy out there, but you're the strongest guy out there for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, so which is which is really cool. So what do you say to yourself as you're agonizing up a heartbreak hill? What's the what's the what's the narrative in your mind? Uh, it's literally one step at a time. I, I wouldn't say it's one push at a time, uh, but it's one little goal at a time. And, you know, and I teach high school now uh, as, as um, one of my jobs. And I tell the kids a lot, don't think about what you, where you're going to be at the end of the year, or don't think about the big picture. Am I going to get into college? Think about what you can control right now. And that's a certain test or a certain project or a certain paper. For me, it's that hill in front of me, okay? In Boston, from miles 17 to 21, there's five or six hills there. If I look at the big picture of how long is it going to take me to get up, you know, those five or six hills, it's going to be agonizing. It'll demoralize you. But if you break it down into little small goals, did I do my best on that one? You know, do I feel good about that? Yes then those things come together. And that's kind of, especially as a quad, you know, I'm, I'm the guy at the, at the back of the pack, right? I usually finish 
a half hour after the, the, the you know, next earliest racer. Um, if I looked at it in the big picture, like I'm going to be so slow, I'm going to be the only wheelchair left, you know, in the transition area, um, it would it would knock me down. But if I break it down and I say I do my I can do my best at this mile or that mile or this mile or this hill, um, it all comes together. It's interesting that you say that you're teaching high school now because you had mentioned that you went to business school, which seems like a, a track to business, but you also have so much to contribute, right? You're college, college soccer player, fighter pilot. I mean, you've done Boston numerous times in, in a way that you had to really learn a perspective in order to be successful how much of all this experience that you've had as, as an athlete, as a fighter pilot, as an athlete, again, as a quadriplegic, as, as a husband, as a, as, a, as a father, how much of that stuff comes into the lessons that you're teaching your students? Um, well, here's a great example. When I graduated from business school, I took a job with one of the top consulting firms in the country. I would put a suit on Monday, get on a plane, fly somewhere, come home Friday. Um, it was the perfect job for kind of a newly minted MBA, which is the degree that I got. Um, for someone in a wheelchair, it's very, very hard. Uh, when you think about traveling week after week after week, how do I stay in shape? Um, I kind of realized that that, as, as enticing as it was, as you know, energizing as it was, it wasn't going to work for me in the long term. So I kind of took a step back away from that. So when I when I think about teaching, I think about okay, I've I've I take all my experiences, the good, the bad, the traveling, the business stuff, the you know, high paying consulting jobs, um, and the little five k road races. And kind of apply that to each of the different kids in my class and think, okay, what can I show them? What can I teach them? And how can I be with them kind of in where they are? So in the back of my mind, I think about what I'm teaching them, but also what they're picking up from me as, you know, from my experiences. So that's, you know, that's kind of something that keeps me going through school. You know, I was really embarrassed. Um, I, I, wanted to be a teacher a long time ago and was really embarrassed because of the wheelchair. I just didn't want to be in front of kids who were going to look at me and think, you know, is this guy going to fall over or who is this weirdo and why is he in front of me? Um, I didn't want to have, you know, muscle spasms or, you know, show them my little quad hands that don't move and have them ask me, hey, Mr. Savicki, how come your hands don't work? Um, but when I realized that that's just who I am and there's still a lot more to give, um, that's what I took with me into the classroom. So from, from business school, through all the racing, through the traveling, that's the stuff that I, I took with me into the classroom. It's an interesting thing too, right? I mean, having been a successful athlete, a college athlete, having been a fighter pilot, having done some of these other things, in a lot of ways, you were bulletproof then, right? You were, you were above it. but then how do you tap in now to some of that vulnerability in, in front of the classroom? Because there's nowhere to hide. No, and that's something that I didn't always have. 
And I was, like you said, I was the bulletproof fighter pilot guy. You know, I was the guy who was going to be on the big screen. Um, to have all that taken away was humiliating. I remember a really funny story when I was in business school. I used to have uh, anti-tip bars on the back of my wheelchair. Now, for those people who don't know what anti-tip bars are, we use really lightweight, maneuverable, kind of um, sort of high-end high aluminum wheelchairs that you know move on a dime. They also flip over backwards really easy. Um, so the bars that I had were almost like training wheels. And I remember in business school one day, um, I was sitting in the back of the classroom and kind of dozing off and falling asleep. And uh, a couple of my buddies took the tip bars off my wheels and never told me. Um, they In the middle of class, they took the your tip bars away. Yep, in the middle of class, they took them off. Um, and I never noticed. And a couple of days later, they said, hey, where'd your tip bars go? And I said, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. You know, I'm gonna flip over. I'm gonna, you know, look like a fool. I'm gonna be an idiot. Um, people are gonna, I'm gonna get hurt in the class. You know, I'm gonna be the only MBA student ever to get a concussion because he flipped over backwards in a classroom. Um, and they said, you've used, you, you've gone without them, never use them again. Find that confidence in you to be able to do that. So that was the story for me. That was, that was like my, my coming to the wheelchair moment of these guys took the anti-tip bars off. I don't know where they ever wound up. Like, I don't know if they left them in a locker or threw them away or if they still have them, but they said, never use them again. And that was kind of, it took a sort of an external stimulus like that to do it. Um, and so in school now, I like to put kids in kind of outside comfort zone, whether I ask them a tough question or I call on them for something that I know they don't want to answer, uh, because it makes them that much better, just a little bit at a time. Which is interesting. So you're talking about going from bulletproof to extremely delicate. Mm -hmm. to recognizing that you're not delicate anymore, that you can, that you can survive and that you can, you can probably do something stupid and still be, still be successful and still possibly get yourself out of that, or most likely get yourself out of that situation. What is it that you teach kids now? I mean, we've sort of talked about the, the grand side of things of what you're teaching, like sharing these messages, but what specifically are you teaching them? What subjects? Uh, so I started teaching high school about six years ago. Um, I came in as an assistant working a lot one-on-one -on -one with kids who need extra help and whether it's history or writing uh, or math or science. Um, I teach two electives right now. Um, the first is called Sport and Society. It's a pretty cool class. If you think about um, artists have a studio, you know, musicians have a studio, dancers have a studio where they can go. But athletes or people who think like athletes really don't have something in school where they can exercise, you know, their minds. They can go and play on a sports team, but they can't exercise their minds. So the class that I created about four years ago, and it's very, very popular in college, but not so much in high school, we learn about sports above and beyond the playing field. So equal pay, um, taking a knee, you know, we learn about 
shoe and shoe culture and brands and brand culture and why do consumers make certain you know decisions to wear one brand or another. Uh, there's about 50, 55 kids in my class right now. Uh, really, really fun. So I teach that and I also teach journalism. Um, writing is something that's always been really close to my heart. Um, I love sharing stories. I love reading stories. Uh, so I teach those two electives and still do the the one on one work, too. Which is interesting. Did you think of yourself as an athlete like your your position? Like I look at this oftentimes like breaking I'm, sport was the thing that I gravitated toward. Right. Mm -hmm. As a kid, it was just it was what I did. It was who I was. I mean, I'm still going to look at the sports page first thing in the morning because it's part of just who I am. But then, then I had my accident, came back into sport and coming back into sport, it's where I found myself. It's where I found the, the pride in myself. And, and I saw a bigger, a bigger role. Like, what is it now? 1.2 billion people in the world with physical disabilities. And in a lot of ways they're invisible because from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare at somebody who looks different, but sport gives you a chance to stare, but also celebrate proficient, proficiency someone who's perfected their craft, right? When did you look at your position in sport and, and your role, like how, how sport could help you in the real world? Yeah, you know, I, I was telling you about the consulting firm that I worked at for a few years after school. I then went to work for a sports nonprofit. It's called World Team Sports. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked there for half dozen years or so. And the organization does sporting events for people with and without disabilities together. Some very high profile things, like we don't do a, a Saturday morning, you know, fun run or anything. Uh, the first event that we did was called the World Ride. 13,000 miles around the world on bikes, people with and without disabilities. We did an event called the Vietnam Challenge where we rode 1200 miles on bikes from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. It was American veterans and Vietnam veterans or Vietnamese veterans of the same war riding together as one team. That's when I started to see the beauty of sport and how it really can influence and shape and shift our society uh, and how something like a ride or an event or you know the Super Bowl uh, or the World Series or the NHL playoffs, we were talking about that earlier, how that can have an impact on people's lives. And that's where I fell in love with taking sport and bringing it off the playing field, because I think, you know, some people speak French, some you know that's their thing. Um, and teach kids where they are, especially, you know, middle schoolers who love playing and they love being out there and high schoolers who love sports, uh, you reach them, that's you reach them where they are. And for a lot of them, it's in that that sports mine or that sports arena. What's it like when that light bulb goes on for those kids? Because in some ways, like growing up as an athlete, it's like, oh, you're an athlete, which means that you're not all that smart, right? You're a dumb jock kind of thing. What's it like when that light bulb goes on and they see just the, the importance of the impact that sport plays? Yeah, you know, if you look at high school, high schools are really crazy time because you're you're all everybody's grouped together in this giant pot and you go from english to history to science to the foreign language to 
whatever your electives are, and you're doing that in you know 45 minute blocks, you're not going to be super successful in all that. But if you have something like sports that you can take with you, that little bit of confidence, it might help you through a math test, or it might help you through a challenging project. You know, somebody's Heartbreak Hill, for me, it's actually Heartbreak Hill, but somebody's Heartbreak Hill might be writing a history paper. So, but if they're an athletically minded person or somebody who sees it in a certain way, like it's a, a process, it's a goal, you're going to get to the finish line. That's the light bulb moment that you want to show them as a teacher. You know, for me, it's not so much what I teach, it's how I teach and how they learn. It's always a question too, is, is resilience something that's learned or is it part of your DNA? Where do you come down on that? You know, if you were to ask me when I first got hurt, if I would have done all these things, you know, marathons and triathlons and wheelchair rugby and hand cycling and, you know, crazy stuff, kayaking long distances. No, I would have never said that. But I think resilience lives in all of us and how we learn that it's there. It might take a challenge. It might take an opportunity. But I think it's in all of us. It just takes something, whatever that catalyst is to bring it out, to bring it out. Is it something that's grounded in, in the passion for what you're doing? Is it, is it just that stick to it Is What do you think? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I wish it were easy to answer, but I don't think it is. You know, maybe that's why high school takes four years. Maybe that's why as soon as you break your neck or you break your back, you don't have all the answers. You go through the peaks and you go through the valleys. You know, life is hard and disability is hard and there's no two ways about that. Um, but being resilient, giving yourself a reason to get up, setting a goal, you know, whether it's a marathon or getting to school or getting to work or contributing something in a job or helping your family, whatever it is, um, that's, that's what brings resilience out in you. It's interesting. You've mentioned a couple of times throughout this talk, the idea of, of disability being hard. How does that relate to your students? Are they sharing a common path, even though it might look entirely different? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not the most um, empathetic person um, out there. Um, but to show, you know, I want to be, I want to have the answers. Uh, I want to get everything planned and, and out in place. Um, but to be vulnerable is something that I really work on. I continue to work on it. Um, even, you know, maybe as a quad, I try a little extra hard to be able to do things on my own. But to realize it's okay to ask for help or it's okay to accept help. And if somebody opens the door for you, it's not because they're totally feeling sorry for you. Maybe by letting them open the door, you're helping them to feel like they're contributing and doing a little, you know, being a little bit more of themselves. That's a good thing. So it's being vulnerable. It's, it's a process that doesn't come easy, but I think it comes with time and experience. Okay. So 22 Boston marathons that we said 24 or 24 total. Well, it depends if you're counting the ones that I ran easily on my feet. 
Uh, I don't know. You uh, took a whole lot longer to run those on your feet than you have the other ones. Yeah, but you know, if you stop and you just walk uh, on your feet, um, you're still moving forward. If I stop and take my hands off the push rings, I'm gonna roll backwards. Um, so, and I and I have a lot. People are like, no, no, go forward, go the other way. What are you doing? I'm taking a break. Give me a chance. Um, I'm just gonna back up into this curb right here and sit for a minute, get some strength, and then I'll keep going. Um, I don't know how long I'll keep doing it. This year was hard. It was cold. There was a bit of a headwind. I hadn't been to Boston in three years because of the pandemic. Um, it was frustrating. It was exhilarating. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, it was only a few weeks ago, so I'm still kind of wrapping my head around everything. I'd love to do more, but you know, if I do, I do. Um, if I don't, then I want to contribute. I want to support it. I want to kind of give back to the race in a certain way. Uh, but I don't have an answer yet. I know I love racing. I know I want to stay out there and keep doing it. Um, I was at the airport flying up to Boston many years ago, and I met a professor. Um, this guy kind of came up to me as we were waiting to get on the flight, and he was much older. Um, and he looked at me and he said, hey, are you doing the marathon? I said, yeah, I am. And he had, a, he had on these really cool running shoes. So I figured he was doing it too. Um, and he said, yep, I ran the Boston Marathon once when I was in college. And I let 50 years pass. He said, I don't want to let any more years pass. So I want to go up and do it. And I looked at him. I said, you ran it once in college. He went to Boston College. His roommate was a guy named Michael Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts. <laughs> they both ran it back when there were only you know a few hundred runners in the race. This gentleman went back 50 years later and did it. I don't know. If what shape I'll be in, you know, 50 years from when I first started. But there's that, there's whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but there's something out there that will bring me back, whether it's next year or in a few years, or, you know, maybe I run it the first time our daughter Caroline runs it. Who knows? Um, whenever that is. Um, but I haven't closed the door on Boston. I think I'll be back there at some point in some fashion. I'm going to unpack that a little bit because it sounded like the message that you got from this from Dukakis's old roommate was that if you stop running it, it's going to be a whole lot harder to do it again. So that that's just one thing I took out of that. I don't know if that was part of your subconscious or not. What are the uh, what are your kids? What are your your students and what is your daughter? What do they think about you doing the marathon? Because I'd imagine that's pretty empowering. Yeah, Caroline loves it. Caroline came and watched me race one year. Um, luckily, there was a really strong tailwind that year. Um, and so she was there and I stopped and hugged and we talked for a little while and, you know, she cheered and everything and we got a bunch of pictures together. And then I rolled back out and kept going and had a super fast time. Um, thankfully, there was a tailwind, so I was feeling good. Um, so she loves watching me race. She gets out now on her bike. Um, she gets out on a razor scooter and we do a few miles together and have a lot of fun. And that's something that, you know, I, I cherish that. Um, the high school kids, especially the kids in my sport and society class, uh, at the beginning of the year, they said, you know, hey, Mr. Savicki, we heard you played murder ball, which I did, wheelchair rugby. 
you know, we heard you can go 40 miles an hour in a racing chair. Tell us the stories. Tell us the stories. Um, I kind of built up to it. So on, on the first day back after the marathon this year, I brought in my racing chair. I brought in my gloves, brought in my helmet, um, let the kids sit in the chair. I showed the NBC broadcast of the wheelchairs, uh, let them answer all the questions they wanted let them sit in the chair because I feel like when that happens, they get a sense of it. Um, I didn't have rollers. So I had one kid in the chair and a couple of kids in the back lifting up the back wheel. So who, whoever was in the chair could push. They could learn what it was like to push the chair. Um, probably one of the best classes of the year because the kids got to experience it. Um, and that was me opening up to them saying, try it, see what it's like and you can learn. They experienced it, and did they experience the uh, the 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 uh, what do you call it the stickum the uh, the clister that quad yeah so that yeah <laughs> that's another quad secret um, and again don't tell anybody about this promise me but we use um, a lot of cluster because it gives us a better grip a lot of the pairs now have you know three D printed gloves that are molded around the rims, you know, for us, it's kind of a beautiful, but a sloppy push. The cluster on the push rings and on the outside of the wheels gives us stronger contact. So if you watch us, we're like that baseball player that's got the illegal stick them on their gloves and on the bat and everything. Um, we use that and we use it in racing. We use it in rugby. Um, I've actually used it on a sailboat um, on the tiller trying to steer because I don't have a grip. So I'm getting on a beautiful white sailboat, you know, nice and polished and everything, putting stickum on the tiller so I don't let go and smash into another boat. So clister is one of the quad secrets that really keeps us going in sports. Uh, well, this is, I think we're going to have to stop, but this has been absolutely wonderful, Mike. I really appreciate you talking us through such a, such a rich life and, and so many different perspectives from, from so many different activities. So thank you so much for sharing with us. You're welcome. I appreciate what you do. And thanks for having me on today. Hey, been a pleasure. So really appreciate it. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, please tell your friends. We'd love to reach as many people as possible. This will be a traditional podcast. And when you when that comes out, we'd love for you to follow us, to like us, and again, to tell your friends. So we're going to hope that we keep growing and we'll have another great guest next week. Thanks a lot and see you next week.